You and I know what it's like to be a human being. We know that we can only ever be in one place at the one time. We know that one day we're born without us even having any say in it, and then another day we'll die. But what about God? What is God like? That's what we're thinking about in this episode of Thinking Theology. Last time we began looking at the doctrine of God. In this episode, we're beginning to think about the nature of God. What are the attributes of God in his very being? Hi, my name's Carl Denick. I'm a pastor, theologian, writer, and Bible college lecturer. Welcome to Thinking Theology, a podcast where we think about theology, the Bible, and the Christian life, not just for the sake of it, but so we can love God more with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. What can we really say about the nature of God? Throughout the history of the church, people have grappled with that very question. It's a problematic topic in some ways because, as Zophar says to Job, can you fathom the mysteries of God? Can you probe the limits of the Almighty? Zophar is, of course, right. By definition, it's impossible for us as human beings to probe the limits of who God is and what it's like to be God. As the theologian Louis Burkhoff writes, the being of God is characterized by a depth, a fullness, a variety, and a glory far beyond our comprehension. But to say that we can't understand God completely is not to say that we can't understand anything about God at all. As Paul says in Romans 1, even creation tells us something about God's eternal power and glory. But the place where we come to know accurately about God is in the Bible. In the Bible, God has revealed to us insights into who he is and what he's like. The knowledge that the Bible gives us is partial, but it is nevertheless true knowledge. So too, as Luther pointed out, the knowledge that we have of God does not so much describe what he is, but it describes the qualities or the characteristics of God. That is, we can say something about what he is like, but we can't really describe his essential being. There are lots of attributes that people have used to describe God. One famous list comes from the 8th century theologian John of Damascus, or Jono of Damascus, as I like to call him. He described God as uncreated, unbegotten, imperishable and immortal, everlasting, infinite, uncircumscribed, boundless, of infinite power, simple, uncompounded, incorporeal, without flux, passionless, unchangeable, unalterable, unseen. So too theologians have often organised those attributes of God in different ways. In this and the next few episodes, we're going to consider those attributes of God under the headings of the nature of God and the character of God. The nature of God refers to the non-moral attributes of God and relate more to the being of God, while the character of God refers to the moral attributes of God and describe more what he is like to relate to in personal terms. The attributes I describe here follow closely the list given by the theologian John Feinberg in his book on the doctrine of God, No One Like Him. That book would be a good place to go if you want to dig into these ideas more deeply. 
Feinberg there lists 11 non-moral attributes of God and nine moral attributes of God. We'll look at the moral attributes of God in this episode in the next one, and then we'll consider the character of God in a couple of episodes' time. The 11 non-moral attributes of God, or the attributes that relate to God's nature that he lists are aseity, or self-existence, infinity, immensity, and omnipresence, eternity, immutability, omnipotence, sovereignty, omniscience, wisdom, unity, and simplicity. First is what theologians often call aseity, but a more helpful term is self-existence. Self-existence refers to the idea that God depends on no one else for his existence. In the last episode, we saw that God just is. As Jesus says in John 5, God has life in himself. He says, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. In the same way Paul says in Acts chapter 17, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Everything is dependent on God and God is dependent on nothing. That is God's self-existence. The next attribute is eternity. God is eternal. He has always existed and will always exist. There was never a time when he didn't exist. There are lots of passages that speak about that. For example, Psalm 90 says, Before the mountains were born or you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Or Psalm 93, Your throne was established long ago. You are from all eternity. Or Psalm 102, In the beginning you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like clothing you will change them, and they will be discarded. But you remain the same, and your years will never end. Habakkuk 1 verse 12 says, Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, you will never die. In Revelation 1, we read, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. In Hebrews 7, it describes Jesus saying, Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, he remains a priest forever. Or again in chapter 13, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. So too God's characteristics are described as enduring forever. For example, Psalm 111 verse 3 says, Glorious and majestic are his deeds, and his righteousness endures forever. Psalm 103 writes, But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him, and his righteousness with their children's children. The eternity of God is also bound up with the name that he gives to Moses. I am. He always was and always will be. As Jesus says to the religious leaders as well, very truly I tell you, before Abraham was born, I am. Jesus is not just saying that he existed before Abraham. He's saying that as God, he has always been. He just is. I am. In thinking about the eternity of God, one question that arises is whether God is 
eternal simply in the sense that he has always been and will always be, or whether he is eternal in the sense that he is outside of time. That is, is his eternity temporal or atemporal eternity? In truth, the Bible doesn't really tell us the answer to that question. Some passages might seem to give us an answer. So, for example, 2 Peter 3 verse 8 says, But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. But as John Feinberg points out, all that verse is really saying is that God perceives time differently to us. It doesn't explain why he perceives it differently to us. Similarly, in Psalm 90 verse 4, we're told, A thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. Again, that verse only tells us how God perceives time, not how he relates to it. A thousand years might just seem like a day because it's next to nothing in the scale of eternity. That said, my cautious inclination is to think that God's eternity is temporal. But it's important to be clear what that means. It all depends really on how you think about time. God clearly doesn't exist within time understood as the spinning of the earth on its axis. Neither does God exist within time understood as in modern physics as the oscillations of the cesium-133 atom. But it could still make sense that within God himself is a notion of sequence. That is, it may be that time is not a limitation that is imposed on us because of our creatureliness, but that time, as we experience it anyway, is actually a reflection of the character of God. That would make sense of the fact that always within the Bible, order matters and things taking place in time matters. That is, the nature of our relationship to God changed after the cross. The sins left unpunished were dealt with. The Holy Spirit was poured out. God's interaction with us is always historical and depends on certain events having taken place one before the other. Nevertheless, the Bible's lack of detail on the subject of how God relates to time suggests that we should be careful. I'm often surprised how many people seek to answer riddles in theology by noting that God sits outside of time. But not only does the Bible not speak clearly to that issue, the Bible also doesn't encourage us to seek answers to theological questions by observing that God is outside time. If that was a profitable way of reflecting on God's engagement with the world, the Bible could have set us that example, but it doesn't. And that ought to urge us to be cautious. The Bible also describes God as omnipresent or present everywhere. So Psalm 139 reflects on the fact that it is impossible to escape God or to end up somewhere where God can't reach us. That Psalm says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, 
Even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. An idea that is related to omnipresence is what is known as God's immensity. So in 1 Kings 8, at the commissioning of the temple, Solomon says, But will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. It's not simply that God can reach everywhere, but God's being is such that he cannot be contained by space. Those two ideas come together in Jeremiah 23, which says, Am I only a God nearby, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Who can hide in secret places so that I cannot see them, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth? The reason there's no place that we can go where God cannot find us is because God is present in every place. He is omnipresent. And yet the presence of God is also a more complicated idea than that too. There are clearly times and ways in which God is especially present. So God can say to Moses in Exodus 33, My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Or David can write, Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. So too, Jesus says, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Or where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them. So too, when Adam and Eve are forced out of the Garden of Eden on account of their sin, they are driven from the presence of God. And Cain, after murdering his brother, goes out from the Lord's presence and lives east of Eden, according to Genesis 4 verse 16. There is a sense then in which God is present everywhere, but he is present in special ways in certain places and with certain people. John Feinberg distinguishes between God's ontological presence and God's relational presence. That is, God is present everywhere in his being, but his relationship to the creation and the people varies in respect of how we stand in relation to him through Jesus, whether we are his enemies on account of our sin or his children on account of Jesus' death and resurrection in our place. For example, it's a mistake to say, as people sometimes do, that hell is a place where God is absent. Rather, according to the Bible, hell is the place where God is present but present in judgment, whereas the new creation is the place where God will be present with his people in love, grace, and mercy. God is also then omnipotent or all-powerful. The biblical expression for that is almighty. In the New Testament, picking up on a word that is used in the Greek version of the Old Testament, God is called pantokratoa, which literally means almighty. But whether using that word or other words, time and again in the Bible, God is described as being all-powerful. So Paul says in Romans 1, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. Or Job says, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. 
So too, Jesus says to his disciples in the Great Commission, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Or in Matthew 19, he says, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Paul describes Jesus as far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Isaiah 14 says, For the Lord Almighty has purposed, and who can thwart him? His hand is stretched out, and who can turn it back? Or Isaiah 43, Yes, and from ancient days I am he. No one can deliver out of my hand when I act. Who can reverse it? So too in Hebrews we're told that Christ upholds all things, and in Colossians that in him all things hold together. But in saying that God is almighty and all-powerful, we also need to be careful to clarify exactly what we mean by that. Can God do absolutely anything? Can he, for example, sin? Can he die? Can he create another God? Importantly, the Bible also tells us that some things are impossible for God. Hebrews 6 verse 18 says, God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. Or 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot disown himself. Or James 1 verse 13, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. In other words, omnipotence does not refer to God's power to do anything at all, but God's power to do anything and everything that is consistent with his nature and character. But far from that being a limitation, that is actually the perfection of his power. Finally, related to God's omnipotence is God's sovereignty. Sovereignty refers to God's control over everything. That is, not only is God all-powerful, but everything that takes place takes place within his will and purpose. For example, theoretically, God could be all-powerful, but choose at points not to exercise that power. God could perhaps have created the world and then let it run and decided not to intervene. That view is referred to deism, as we saw in the last episode. In deism, God is like a watchmaker who makes the watch and then lets it run. But that's not the view of God that the Bible presents. Another view is that while God is all-powerful, perhaps he limits the use of his power so as not to crush human free will. That view is often described as Arminianism, referring to the famous proponent of that view, Jacob Arminius, who was around at the time of the Reformation. But the Bible presents God as being in control of everything, with his purpose and will standing in some way behind all that happens in the world, even our decisions. Paul can write, for example, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Everything is worked out in conformity with the purpose of God's will. Or Psalm 115 says, Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. Or Psalm 135, I know that the Lord is great, that our Lord is greater than all gods. The Lord does whatever pleases him in the heavens and on the earth, 
in the seas and all their depths. Or Job says of God, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. So too, God's plan, purpose and power stand behind even our human acts and human decisions. Paul says in Acts 17, For in him we live and move and have our being. We can do nothing apart from God's power and activity enabling us to do that. Proverbs 16 verse 9 tells us that in their hearts humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. Salvation too is grounded in God's choice rather than human desire or effort. Paul says in Romans 9, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Finally, even evil is not outside God's control. Famously, Joseph says to his brothers in Genesis 50 that while they intended their actions for evil, God intended their actions for good. How the sovereignty of God fits within human responsibility and also with evil is a complex subject that we'll return to in a few episodes' time when we look at the providence of God or God's control over the world. But for the moment, it's helpful simply to note that not only is God all-powerful, but he is sovereign over all things. Everything that happens flows in some way from his purpose and will. Moreover, whatever God chooses to do is unconstrained. No one compels him to do it. No one compels him to do one thing rather than another. Instead, his decisions are entirely his own and arise from his own plans and own motivations. God is self-existent, eternal, omnipresent, all-powerful, and sovereign. And while those attributes might seem at face value a little bit complicated maybe, or even a bit dry, they're really important for us to understand. That's because they each impact the way we relate to and trust God. God's self-existence means he is utterly reliable. He depends on no one else. Therefore, we can always depend on him. God's eternity means that God never goes away. He's not like family and friends who one day will die. Unlike them, God will never leave us or forsake us. God's omnipresence means, as we saw from Psalm 139, that we can never escape God and no one and nothing can ever take us somewhere that God isn't with us. God's omnipotence means that nothing we face is beyond God's power. And God's sovereignty means that whatever happens, God is working all things together for the good of those who love him. Far from being academic, understanding the nature of God is deeply, deeply practical. Well, that's it for this episode of Thinking Theology. Join me next time as we think about the rest of the non-moral attributes of God, his omniscience, his wisdom, his immutability, infinity, unity, and simplicity. Please join me then.